Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. The world needs to hear your message and your story, so don't deny the world of that gift within you that the universe has given you. Someone out there needs to hear your story because it will support them in feeling hope, inspired, and even transformed. Do you want to discover how I help get my clients out of their own way, show up, and confidently share their message? I would love to extend an invitation to you to join me in my free masterclass, Start Your Own Podcast from Idea to Implementation, on Wednesday, April 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find the registry link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest is Pooja Shah. She is an award-winning author, a poet, the president of the Shah Foundation and Exploration Foundation. Welcome, Pooja. I am so happy to have you here. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. Well, good morning for you because you're on the left coast in California in that sunshiny state. So welcome. I'm very happy to have you here and I'm really excited about our conversation coming up and diving into all the beautiful light you shine out into the world through the work you're doing and sharing a bit about your story and your journey. So with that being said, let us jump in. Now, I know you wear few other titles. You are also the co-founder of Deep Origins. You're a yoga and meditation teacher. And of course, last but certainly not least, you're a mother. That is exhausting. Just thinking about all those titles, a hell of a lot of hats you wear and an extensive resume. So my first question for you would be, how do you find the time for all of this? And how do you prioritize? And how important is prioritization and organization to you? That is a great question. I know when I built my website and I was listing it out, it was the first time I really ever listed everything out on a resume. Sometimes it's oriented to what I'm applying for, but this felt like, oh, okay, I do have a lot of hats here. (laughs) And I love how you mentioned mother. I think many times that is not left up to as a profession or whatever we want to call it. But for me, first and foremost are my kids. I had a really busy healthcare career, I guess you can call it, before becoming an author. I was traveling for the state of California. It was an amazing experience for me in public health, but it took a lot of time away from my kids. It took a lot of time away from my passions. And so when someone asked me, how do you do it all now? When I look back, I think this sounds crazy, but I feel like I have figured out how to break some sort of time-space continuum because I'm just doing what I love. Finally, I'm doing what I've stepped into, my dharma, my purpose. And I think when we do that, all of these hats I wear, at least for me, becomes effortless. I know it sounds like a lot, but it doesn't feel like it because I have the energy for it and I have the vitality. I mean, today's International Yoga Day, the prana, we call it the life force. All of that is just flowing through me. So there are moments where it's overwhelming, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't feel like an overwhelming place to be. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it, it makes it easier when you step into that flow and that space of authenticity because you're doing what you love. So it doesn't feel like work. It's not work. Exactly. It's exactly. just being. <laughs> I'm very curious then with you wearing so many hats, what does your morning routine look like? Okay. If I can be honest, I'm, I'm going <laughs> yes, to say, do. Uh, yeah, I will. I really struggled with this, Brad, when I left my corporate job, I was really having a hard time figuring out how do I balance a time schedule when before my schedule was dictated for me. So I was suddenly in charge. And also as a mother, my children's schedule kind of dictated my life. My corporate career had dictated my life. My even down to co-founding our family company, a lot of that had kind of dictated a lot of what I was set out to do. And I had to pause. It was really important for me to just go inside and use my meditation, use the tools that I finally embraced for myself. And then I saw how I was in charge. And then it became amazing. My morning, it really varies. Like I mentioned, sometimes my meetings, podcast interviews, book club gigs, whatever it is, it can vary. But there's one thing that doesn't change. And it's what got me to understand how I can take charge of my schedule is meditation. So I'll take time, sit down every single 
single morning, close my eyes. I have an altar. I have different goddesses and gods, sacred geometry, things that I feel connected to and important to me in my life. I'll light incense. I will just connect to gratitude and to my intention. And that just gives me this really important outlook and allows me to prepare a schedule that works for me in my day as I listen to what I need versus listen to what's dictated outside of me. So organization is super important to me. And however, without this, I think even my organization was just scatterbrained. I needed to really just pause for a second. And that's what I do every day. And this I'm assuming is a non-negotiable. I have to do it. If I need to drop the kids off early one day, I will still come back and I will just sit down. And even if it's five minutes, I have mornings where I have 20 minutes to myself to do that. Sometimes I'll very rarely will have an hour. (laughs) But when I do have that, I embrace it. I'm grateful for it. And if I don't have it, I know that I need at least five minutes and I will take it because if I don't, I know what can happen just to my mental state. I feel like I just go without taking that moment to pause. And then I'm just doing versus being. And like we talked about in the beginning, I have to operate from the place of being. Otherwise, I can't create. I can't be the best mom. I can't do any of the things that are very important to me. Absolutely. And so you briefly mentioned you had a career in healthcare. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, like what that was for you before making the jump into entrepreneurship. Yeah. I, at the time, was a dental consultant for the state of California health plan. I was hired by Delta Dental, a huge corporation in the U.S. Really what I did in the day-to-day is I wrote briefs and ways we could bring access to care to indigenous populations, areas that were remote. I was speaking at dental schools on this. It was really rewarding since social causes, humanity, these are a big part of my makeup as a being, I think. But I didn't always want to be a dentist. We can unpack this. But I had always wanted to give back to communities. And so I was using my dental degree to do that. Prior to that, I had I was in a private practice for a while after I graduated and completed my residency, and I was I was just not happy, mainly because it was not what I had intended to be doing, but also I, I wasn't fulfilling this need for me to work in community. And so, long story short, I ended up in Uganda doing some work at a hospital there with a friend's nonprofit, and it just led me to it changed my life. And and then I went to India. And so I spent time overseas doing a lot of work, public health work, but then connecting to what was really important to me, which is what my novel is about, which is girls' rights. And so all of it really came into play. But that was my career. I actually just left that career. It'll be two years this fall. So it's very new that I left uh, that career. Congratulations on that. Thank you. And so what was the catalyst then for that transition from working as a medical professional into entrepreneurship and how hard or easy was that transition for you? Yeah, this is a very deep question. I need <laughs> to unpack myself. I became a dentist. My parents are dentists and I'm South Asian. My parents are Indian immigrants that came to the US. They came here around on the cusp of the civil rights movement, right when the Immigration Act in the US opened up. And so around that time, there was no race or country barriers. They had opened that up, but they did prefer people who were doctors, lawyers, or engineers from countries like India. And so my parents were around teenagers, I guess. And they were told, well, hey, you have an opportunity to better your life and go to America, the land of freedom and all that. I mean, India was just on its years of freedom from the British. And so I think my grandparents were probably looking at this as an opportunity for my mom and my dad. And they came here. And so when I was in high school, I had all these high school teachers telling my parents, well, what English program is she going into? Because I was winning these awards, short story awards, national poetry awards. I mean, it was so many. But to them, they were like, well, she's just going to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. That's all there is in life. We don't know anything else. And so that's how I became a dentist. And I, I look back and I'm not I actually, like I told you, went to Uganda. I figured out it was part of my, I'm grateful for all of it. It was part of my life story, really. And when I look at that during the pandemic, I kind of slowed down. Contrary to popular consensus, it was a blessing for me. (laughs) I was able to just reevaluate. Well, I became this dentist. What did that mean? I have always been writing. I never let go of that. I was always running from my residency to writer's class in New York City. I mean, it was always part of me. And that's what I started to explore more when I could slow down. I wasn't traveling for work. I wasn't running around for my kids. And I took out this manuscript I had started almost 
five or six years prior to that from a short story I wrote 10 years before that. And I just said, I need to finish this. And that's what I did. I finished it. And so (laughs) once that happened, Brad, it was like the catalyst. That was the catalyst. I needed to have it in my hand and say, and don't get me wrong, I still needed to figure out how to query it, which I did. Getting a book published is not easy, but the hard part, the writing the book that was done and the even harder part was believing in myself enough to know, well, I can get this out into the world. And so, but once that happened, it was no turning back. I look at that transition and I think it needed to happen. There was nothing in my, I mean, I believe in the stars. I believe my connection to the planets. If I look at my astrology, the universe was all kind of moving me to this path and I was ready to embrace it. And so once I was ready, it was like, okay, here you go. Let's keep going. Opens up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's keep in that vein then with the whole writing and author. Let's get into the bit about the poetry and the writing. When did you first realize that you wanted to be a writer? I know. I get this question at some of these interviews sometimes. And the first thing I remember was, let me think of the first memory that I had on when I was writing. And I was in the second or third grade And I'll back up a little bit. When I went into kindergarten, I mainly spoke my parents' mother tongue, their language, Gujarati, which is a dialect kind of Hindi from India. And I spoke English, but I was, my parents were like, she'll learn English. And now we know how beneficial that is for kids. But back then they were so concerned. The teachers put me in English as a second language. They were unsure if I would ever learn English, but I had understood all of it. I just wasn't necessarily sharing what I had learned with everyone. And so the joke is I went straight to, I just I went into the ESL and then in second grade, I wrote some short story that got an award. It was circulated around the school. And I thought, oh my gosh, I didn't even understand it. I was like, is, is this what language can do? It can create emotion. It can elicit this idea of someone reading what I wrote and then feeling something. And that was the first time I remembered that connection. And then I wrote this poem in third grade. I was, or maybe fourth grade. It was sometime in my elementary school career that I understood that poetry was another form. And so I was playing around with the forms of of what I was learning and then understanding that I could express my feelings and thoughts this way, let alone also connect to other people this way. And so that was the first time I ever realized how much I enjoyed writing, really, if I look back. And so where do you pull your inspiration from when you're writing? It's, I think, nature. I used to live in a concrete jungle of New York, and <laughs> which I love. New York is a huge part of my life and heart. When we moved to California, just being in nature, I realized just how much nature can inspire me specifically, not everyone. But for me, it's like I look outside or I take a walk or we'll go camping or hiking and we we drive around and it just, it fills me and just, just kind of settles my nervous system. That's one way. And, And really when I'm in creative mode, everything around me turns to art. My kids will be playing and I'm inspired. So it's just about resetting myself to feel creative. And then really my inspiration can drop from truly anything, which is what I think real artists need and can be and exist in this world. So it's a matter of me making sure, taking care of myself to make sure I can keep drawing inspiration. What lights you up or excites you the most about writing? I think it's the flow. It's feeling sometimes when I feel creative and I'm writing, it's like this electricity inside of me. I love performing spoken word poetry. So when I'm doing any of that, it just feels like I have lit up something very deep inside of me. And it just kind of fuels this life force that we talked about earlier. I think it's just like when an artist probably feels when they're painting, it's just bringing voice out. And it's so different than writing a research paper because sometimes people will say, well, I was writing for a career prior, but I said, it's not the same. Writing something like that is not the same as writing from an unspoken subconscious or a place that now visiting only because I'm putting pen to paper. So I think that's what excites me for sure. Something interesting that I heard and people told me when I left corporate and moved into photography as my full-time career is that before I did that, they're like, you have photography as a hobby. But when you make that shift into it becoming your job, you're going to end up hating it because it's work. And it's like, no, that's not true. I don't buy it. I don't believe it for a second. Yes. And I think it's complete bullshit that people think that. Maybe, I guess maybe for some people, but I never found that. 
And I've never talked to anyone who has done the same thing that feels that way. I agree. I mean, well, firstly, I love photography as well. It's a hidden art form that I think now is changing with digital, but I do think photography, it's like capturing something, right? You're capturing a moment in time and, and bringing voice to it. And so it's the same as all art. I think the minute we can bring voice to what we are interpreting as our as being fully present in this world, I mean, that's the meditation. That is what we're creating. And so you're right. When we're fully present, that's joy. Whether it's in pain, sorrow, love, happiness, all of it, but you're expressing that emotion. I think that old language of, well, you're going to hate it is because if you're doing it for some other reason, if you're a photographer for maybe, um, I could just, I'm throwing this out there, but like you're working for a company. I have a mug in front of me for a company who makes mugs and you're just not passionate about it. You've lost the passion. You've lost that in you. And so you need to recenter, you know, realign, and then you'll find it again. I think that's the hidden message of, well, if you want to do what you love, don't be afraid of it. Just make sure you keep the passion alive and well part of you. That is definitely the key piece of that. Very important. Thank you for sharing that. Back to the writing stuff. On the flip side of it, what would you say is one of the most challenging parts about being a writer? That's what we just talked about in in making it work. I have my next novel in the works. I have a synopsis and all that completed. And I now need to sit down and actually write it. And so it's the diligence. It's saying, well, so I have to say on this day... I'm going to start with a thousand words a day or whatever my goal is going to be. Because if I don't, I just won't do it. Even on the days I probably don't have inspiration because every day is not a creative inspiration for everybody, which is the vinyasa of life. It's okay. And I need to make myself just right on those days because that's the hard part. That is. <laughs> <laughs> this leads into something that we all experience as artists, these creative blocks. When you get those, What have you found helps the most when they do come up? How do you deal with them? Yeah, for me, it's taking time alone. I'm surrounded by a family every day. I'm surrounded by so many different people. And whether I'm meeting a book club or my kids or whoever it is, I need to take time alone. And alone in the sense of not not just go alone and start writing actually to get myself to do that. I need to remove myself from whatever scenario or scene or place I'm in, change the scenery, go into nature, do something that allows me to disconnect, to connect. And then I can kind of get through those. Because <laughs> <laughs> they do come up and undoubtedly they're going to, it, it's just part of the creative process. So I l- always love hearing people's takes on how they get through those and how they work through those creative blocks. It's very interesting to hear everyone because everyone has a different way of dealing with it. So thank you. Totally. And I think the one thing that allowed me to reframe is I used to feel like, well, what if I'm stuck? What if I'm stuck in this creative, in this block or writer's block or whatever? I just do something else. I'll just write. If I'm not, if I'm not feeling writing the story or or the chapter or whatever scene I'm working on, then I'll go to write a poem or I'll go free journal. And just trying to take the craft and change it and do something completely different can help. But also to find gratitude in it. I The other day, it was on fire. I wrote the whole synopsis up. I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel so good about this. Feel so good. And the next morning, I just... I don't know. It was almost like I got drained. Something happened where I thought, well, I can't get the words out. And I was like, you know what? This is okay. I'm just here to think of this and think of more ideas and find a little bit more gratitude in that to remind myself, well, you just need a moment to pause and be alone or whatever it is that the universe is trying to tell me in that second where I almost feel a little bit, oh gosh, what am I going to do? What am I going to (laughs) write? Because it can happen. And it's, The more we embrace, the more it'll work in our favor, I think. I've been told, I asked this of a painter and she said to me, she said, the more that we try to push through, the more you're going to butt up against things. You cannot force creativity to flow. So it's best to just step away, but absolutely under no circumstances, try and force it because then it just won't happen. It won't come to be. Totally. I read this book called The War of Art. Have you heard of it? I have. Oh my gosh. And 
I mean, I read it before I was even an author or working on this. And I remember it's so many quotes from that book, just remember resonating. And I wrote them in my journal. I'll look at that just to try to get through. But I love the premise. And it's written in this way that's almost comical. Like we're yeah. just like laughing about how we place so much emphasis on this block of this <laughs> thing, as if it's a thing, as if it's a mountain we have to move. And yeah. Really, it's all in our mind. <laughs> That's right. And we are our biggest hurdles, our own worst critics. So it's clearing that mind space, like you said, taking some time alone and sorting through all of it. Is there anything that you know now as the author you are today that you wish you knew back when you first started your journey as an author? Oh, yeah. I, first, I, I was humbled. I was humbled on just number one, the times I fell on the floor and thought I wasn't going to get a book deal, like to go back to that self and be like, it's time, patience, it happened. But of course, those were those moments I needed to go through. And second, really now when I'm looking at it, this is completely off and nothing to do with the creative portion, but just the PR. It's so time consuming and I didn't realize it. And I wish I had been a little more equipped, I'm grateful, but it happened so fast. And there was so much to sort through and try to understand well, what's worth it, what's not worth it. And so looking forward um, in this author career, I am looking for definitely a, a representation to help me because it, it has been a whirlwind and and I didn't know it. And it happened really fast. And I had a marketing plan. I had it all. And then suddenly it was like, just At crazy town, which was awesome. But I just, <laughs> like, oh my gosh, I didn't know. I, and I wasn't prepared. And so I think if I were to, I teach some writing courses when I talk to some authors who are looking, I, I always tell them like, just carve out time for your PR with your marketing plan. You're not only marketing your book, you're also going to be speaking and, and just have all of that in your back pocket because it's something I wish I had known for sure. Who are a couple of authors that you look up to that you like and admire? So I am an avid reader. So I mean, when I hear this question, it changes all the time because like, <laughs> I love this one. I love that one. The person I'm thinking of now is I just picked up her new book, Lisa C. She's a historical fiction writer and she's Chinese American and she really dives into some of the most amazing topics. One of her books, she dives into foot binding and she also works within female relationships. Her newest book is about a circle of women from this, you know, ancient time in China. And so I love her. I love that she researches <laughs> her novels. I actually just met her and I don't think she realizes how important this was, but she's like, oh, because I had gone to an event by a company that had put on a book event for me at a local library. And I said, oh, well, I'll definitely come. And when she found that out, she said, well, we both should hold our books up and take a photo. And I felt like a kid in Disney World, like when you first meet <laughs> yeah. Cinderella, like I, she's been my one of my favorite authors forever. And here I was next to her and we were holding our books up to with each other, exchanging our books. I was like, this is surreal, but she is by far one of my favorite authors. And another author I just finished watching the series is Gregory David Roberts. I don't know if you've okay. seen the Shantaram series. It's so good. And Shantaram is one of my favorite books and kudos to him for, it's like the book is this thick, but it's so good. And he has wrote another book. So was, I guess it was an epic two. moment though with Lisa C. Like that's... <laughs> I mean, I felt like a, I, I literally felt like a little girl. I got in the car and I squealed. I'm like, I don't think I've squealed in a long time. I was like, just, I was like, oh my gosh. That's yeah. A it felt moment awesome. and, and that's a memory you'll have forever. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so powerful. Okay. Let's jump in and speak about your book. Can you share with us the name of the book, what it's all about, when it was released? Sure. So the book is titled For My Sister. It released October 18th, 2022. So this October will be my one year book anniversary. It's coming up in, in, in a number of months. It's about twin sisters, Amla and Asya. They're 16 years old and they're very close yet very different, almost opposites. And they are unknowingly trafficked. They come from a small, very small village outside of Mumbai in India. And they think they're going to go to work and they end up being trafficked by their uncle trust someone in the hopes of money, which is a very big theme in generational poverty. And they end up 
in Sonagachi, which is India's largest red light district. They are eventually separated. And so the whole book is a dual perspective from both their journeys on if they will find each other again. I won't give it away, but it is a story about girls rising up. It portrays the world of trafficking, which is not only in India, but all around the world. And and I've aligned with a number of causes that are talking about trafficking. What a powerful story. I have to read that book, most definitely. <laughs> Got to support you, Pooja. Thank you. I can't wait for you to, to, to hear what you think of it. Now, obviously, this is an incredibly taboo and not often talked about topic, but it is rampant in the world, as you mentioned. It's not just India, it's everywhere. And so many people are afraid to talk about it. They've got their heads buried in the sand, or they just don't even know that is going on in their own backyard. So I would love to know what the inspiration was for you to write a book on this topic and why is this subject matter so personally important to you that you would write a book about it? Sure. So my parents are from, like I mentioned, both from India and my mom actually grew up as one of of four sisters. She had no brothers. And this concept in India of having no brothers, no male child is, it's pretty intense. I mean, my grandfather was luckily this amazing human. One of my mentors I I dedicate in the beginning of my novel to just his name. He was a vice chancellor, which is just, he oversaw a lot of the education in many of the colleges and universities of the state my mother was from. So he would say always, well, I'm going to treat my daughters like they're my sons. And so all of them had education. She was one of just a few that was in a graduating class during grad school of women. And so I'd hear these stories as a kid. My aunt would say, Oh, I had no one in my, no, I was, me and um, my this auntie were the only women. And so they would say these things to me. And I think it was so different for me as a first generation to be living in a country where that's not the case. However, I started to notice then the ways that in my country, in the US too, there were these kind of double standards. And so- yeah. It just allowed me to shift my lens. And so I I had that early on. And then I always wanted to question. So we'd see things happening. And when I went into university, of course, I was doing my pre-med courses, but I was so drawn to women's studies courses. I was taking all these social justice writing courses. I was really filling my plate to fill my cup. And I took this course. And in my novel, I actually contacted the professor I took these courses with. 20 years later, I contacted her and said, I don't know if you remember me, but your class has changed my life and I'd love to chat. And she wrote back and she said, I do remember you. I mean, it came full circle and her and I had done a, my, one of my thesis papers on femicide around the world. And so that kind of got me into this idea of, well, what is happening to girls and women around the world? Why are they second-class citizens? Where did this come from? And that's what drove me and right in. Trafficking, initially I had written a collection of short stories on different girls' rights topics. Some included sati, which is when women are thrown into the fire after their husband dies or in cremation. I talked about FGM happening in Africa, female genital mutilation. I mean, a lot of these stories I wrote, the one that stood out to me also as a literary, just literary wise, I was enthralled with twins. I love this concept of twins. And so when I wrote the story about Amla and Asya, I wanted to continue the story. And so I pulled that story out and that's how this all kind of started. And really ironically, I'll share, I I was obsessed with twins. I interviewed this twin psychiatrist. She's a world renowned Dr. Barbara Klein during the research of the novel, just to talk to her about some of the ESP and stuff that happens with the twins. And it was so fascinating. But after I wrote the book, I was doing my first book talk, one of them, and somebody talked to me about, well, they're so different. And it just dawned on me that I learned about myself through the process of this story because I was actually talking about the duality of these girls. One girl wanted to follow the rules and she was always like, why is my sister getting in trouble? Why does she question the world? Why is she so, oh gosh. And then the other sister is just constantly, well, why does that happen? Why didn't you let my mom get educated? Or she had all these questions. And that is the duality that I think existed in me as a good Indian girl, quote unquote, and then it exists in all women, I think. So 
Anyway, I kind of digressed here, but yeah, that oh, was. <laughs> I love it. No, that's brilliant. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. I would love to know then what your process was when writing this book on such a topic that you chose and how challenging or how easy was it to write this story and how long did the process take? I'm sure there were times where it was quite difficult to write because it's such a difficult and taboo topic. So I would love to hear about this. Yeah, it is very fluctuating. I had a really hard time in some scenes. I would write it out like there are some scenes that I, which I actually didn't get into so much of the detail on when the girls are first trafficked into the brothel, like their first encounter with the men. I wanted to keep it really accessible, but yeah. writing that was one of the hardest scenes. And I know it's not going to change anything, change the story or give anything away, but the girls... I kept it where the girls are kind of lucid because they're drugged. And just instead of telling it, I just wrote it as an experience. Like, I don't I feel dizzy. And just really explaining it from that perspective. One, because for the reader, it humanizes what is happening because they're feeling and seeing and breathing what's happening with these girls. Yet it's not this very descriptive, like hard to read way to put it. So that was the one thing that was, I think, if I look back at what was the hardest scene for me. But then there were these really, I mean... The empowering scenes where I was like rejoicing when, <laughs> when, when they were. And the thing that I think I'll share is I wrote this while I grew up going to India and being in India. I also, I'm American. I am first generation. I wanted to make sure I had the cultural lens correct. And I think that is so important when writing about anything that is not from your own backyard. I think it's important to remember there are cultural components to things that maybe my lens does not grasp. And so I sent it to a nonprofit from India that I was working with, just gathering information from. And they called me and and we got on Zooms two in the morning. I mean, our time difference was crazy, but they would tell me, these are some of the things that probably would not happen this way, the way you've written them. And for one instance, it was one of the characters falls in love with someone from the volunteer organization. And which they said, that's likely. However, there would be a board, there would be a hearing, they would probably get married, they would not leave that she would have counseling, there was so much more to it than kind of how I had drawn this beautiful story. And I had to add all of that in. And I'm so grateful because it provides this richness to the culture and to the novel and to understanding a deep understanding that this is not necessarily a story we tell where each survivor does not have agency. The girls in my novel have agency for that reason because I wanted to create it that way. And so that was a very hard endeavor to take on after I wrote it to edit that in. So editing for me is definitely some of the hardest. So how long did the process take then from start to finish for you? I want to say I wrote the manuscript five years ago, or all actually seven years ago now. It took, I would say at least seven years to get it to where I wanted Of course, I had time off because of my corporate career in between, but I was still always tweaking. And if I look at it now, I I needed at least two years for all of the editing to get eyes on it to just that whole process is also built into it. It's not just writing the manuscript. Yeah. So for sure, I... It's a very different novel than when I first started. The manuscript I walked around with when I first did it <laughs> is almost a different book. Perspective-wise, literary-wise, I had contacted a very good friend who's a phenomenal author who said, you need to work with this editor just to really see. What, it's beautiful what you said. It's great to get different eyes on and see how. And actually, it was some of the best advice I had gotten when I rewrote it. So I think... For any writer out there, to have beta readers, have an editor look at your work, it's crucial. And I didn't know that until I was in it. Thank you for sharing that. Now, in your opinion, keeping with this topic of trafficking, what do you think is the way forward through all this? And how do we even begin to tackle an issue as prevalent and large as this and start making progress here against the traffickers? Because it almost seems insurmountable due to the amount of it going on in the world. It's everywhere. So how, in your opinion, how do we start? It's everywhere. I, I mean, when I started talking to some of the nonprofits, my first instinct was that it's insurmountable. How are we going to tackle this. And I started noticing how these nonprofits in their pockets of the world are doing so much. And so one, yes, it's a, there's over 40 million human trafficking victims. It's 150 
billion dollar global industry. I just want us to digest that, that number. Yeah, that... It's yeah, exactly. But however, the more you and I talk about this, the more other people, for me, it was more people read a book that fiction can access people who may have never even thought about trafficking. And so for yeah. me, using my art to, to gain access for those readers to have meaningful conversations in their circle and to really bring awareness to the causes that are on the ground every day, that's how I see change happening. I see that because the more we talk about it, the more it spreads, the more it doesn't become normal. We have to take away the normalization of something that is clearly wrong. I have, I have not talked to one person that would say, well, maybe, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's just- Except it, the people who are perpetrating it. Except the people who are perpetrating it. <laughs> like 150 billion. I know. That is absolutely heartbreaking and just terrible that this goes on. And so many people don't even know about it and it's happening in their own backyards. Yep. And it's all forms. I mean, I talk a little bit about there's orphan trafficking, there's actually labor trafficking. We look in our own backyard if we want to talk about some of the businesses that will traffic in people to work for them in our country. And there's whole, all different forms of trafficking. There's sex trafficking, but the majority for us to realize are girls and women. So for me, it's clear that there is a disproportionate, there's an issue here and we need to address it. There was a reader who had posted it and said, it's hard for me to understand how as a mother, you were able to write the story because these girls are stars. And I, I sat with that for a second and I said, well, it's the only reason I should be writing the story yeah. as a mother. How am I going to allow my children to be in a world where this exists? I mean, that is, it's clear. It was almost like, whoa, putting it in that perspective is a whole different take. And so as parents, I, I, th I think of all the fathers and think of anyone out there, we need to change the narrative of this world for our kids. And if we start doing it, it can get better for them and then it can get better for their kids. So we just have to continually talk about it through platforms like podcasting and even just community conversations, the communities that we're in, start talking about these things. Start sharing your thoughts, your ideas, and bring awareness around it. We need to shine a light on it 100%. so that people know. I recently went to a book club and it was amazing. All the women were 70. And <laughs> the one, I was like, oh my gosh, you're my inspiration. We've had book club for 30 years. That's so cool. <laughs> so it was really awesome. But one of the things one of the women said was, I've gone on some vacations, but she had never been to Asia or India or anywhere. And she loved the, the description. She's like, it makes me want to go to India for the description. And she's like, and then I also, it just makes me want to do something. And, and I thought even her just saying that, that even her just having that feeling, it makes me want to do something. She doesn't know what, and I can yeah. send her like some websites she can visit uh -huh. and, and the causes, but that catalyst of, I want this to change like that, that starts here, right here. Yeah. Heart. I'm putting my hand on my heart. That's my goal. Someone said, what's your goal with your novel? I, I want people to read it. I guess I love any acclaim, all of that of who doesn't. But really for me, when she said that, I'm like, that's my goal. I want to shift something inside of someone the way it did for me when I was a kid. And I would read a book that I was like, this doesn't feel right. Why is this happening? I want to change that. And so that is all my goal is. And, and I think, I really do think that I think it's going to happen. I think people are going to start having more conversations and they're going to start talking more and we're going to see this shift and we're going to embrace it and we're going to take it and work together as a community and make sure it changes. I love that. And like you said, right, this art in general is about creating this to elicit emotion in the viewer, in the reader, whatever that may be, whatever art form it is. And that's exactly what you did. And really our goal is to do that with one person, just one. Of course, absolutely. We want to reach as many as possible, but the goal in mind, first and foremost, is to reach one. And you did that. So how incredibly powerful is that? And like you said, she doesn't know what she wants to do, but she wants to do something. And so the more people that read it, that will elicit that emotion within them, maybe some of those people will start stepping forward and looking into, hey, what can I do here? How can I help further or start down the road of doing something about this horrible thing that's going on in the world? What can be my contribution for that? Totally. Banksy, the, the artist, the graffiti yeah. artist. Mm -hmm. We had an exhibit recently in San Diego. We went, of course, I, I love his art. And he had a quote that was like, art should 
comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And, <laughs> and I looked at that quote, like for a few minutes, I was like, wait, what is, and I realized we talk about these things, trafficking and child marriage. And I realized in that moment, yes, this is not a beach read, whatever. It's not like, I mean, it could be, I, I read it on a beach. I mean, it's not that mainstream fiction. It's a topic that I think can kind of make people uncomfortable. But if we don't do that as artists, like you said, then to me, what I, I, could, I could easily write a beautiful Disney type love story. <laughs> would, it's very easy to do that for me because I love love stories. But at the same time, <laughs> I want to create something that, that I can leave and, and look back at and think, like you said, it, what, that one person wanted to make a change or this organization was able to benefit from this and help X, Y, and Z women and girls. It has to be meaningful. And, and yeah. Let's disrupt yeah. shit. That's what it's about. Let's just disrupt, disrupt it. Yeah. There we go. Here's to that. Let's get shit done. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start the conversations. Because again, I believe, and you and I have talked about this many times, conversation is the catalyst for change. So we just have to keep talking about it and keep bringing more and more people into the conversation, keep educating people, shining a light on things such as this to bring the awareness around it. Because like I said, before, when we first started talking about this, there's so many people who don't even know this is going on. And that's not through ignorance or any, it's just through not knowing. And so if we can educate these people through conversation about it, maybe this will start to change things. And I believe, like you said, I believe it will change. We just have to keep talking about it and keep it at the forefront, keep bringing the awareness, keep shining a light on it to bring the awareness to people and let people know that this is going on. I agree. I mean, I don't think that, like you said, people are ignorant or unaware. I learned things even through my research that I did not know about. Yeah. And I think the more we can broaden our knowledge base on what is happening in the world and not in a way to scare ourselves, no. right? I think it's like we're doing, bringing light to things that we as as light warriors can, can yeah. change. And, and mm -hmm. we all are in it together. We all want this world to be a place of love and trust and peace and just a place that we can all thrive in and live and connect in. That's it. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with fear because fear elicits and leads to control. And that's not what it's about. It's about educating and bringing awareness is what it's about. So let's just keep doing it. Let's just keep talking about it and sharing it and shining a light on it. And your book is one of those pieces that will help do that. So I know that the book has received a lot of attention, awards, accolades. I'm curious, what does all of that recognition and those accolades and the awards for your writing mean to you? Does it carry much weight with you or is it more like a nice to have a feather in your cap kind of thing? I mean, I think any artist loves to see people love their work, but really it's been nice. I will say at the same time, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't feel like I, I love my story. I love this book. I love the message it carries. And really to me, the things that that woman in that book club feel, feel even bigger to me than the award. Another woman broke down and started crying in a book club and I'm sitting there crying next to her at that <laughs> moment. I, I can't explain it, but there's something about connecting with readers who are reader. I'm a reader, right? We're all readers. Yeah. But connecting with the reader who, who feels the story is way more powerful to me than some of these awards. There was an award ceremony. I couldn't go to it. I was recording for this Sony TV episode, which on a side note is all my parents, friends and all the <laughs> Indian people love Sony TV. So, um, so we, they were like, it was a big deal, right? And I'm like, I don't know. Okay, should I go to the book award or should I go to this TV thing? And to be honest, I was like, as much as I wanted to go to the award ceremony, I was like, I'm so grateful. Thank you for giving me this award. But I don't need to go up and be on stage and have an award handed to me. I appreciated it. I was just like flying yeah. there too crazy. And I just thought, it's fine. And then that's just how I feel. I know everyone's different. But for yeah. me, yeah, it's more about who I'm connecting with, for sure. The impact. For sure. I love it. Now, I know through previous conversations with you, you're a spiritual woman. You have spiritual practices, meditation. You've already spoken about that. I'm very curious how your spiritual journey began. What Was there a catalyst moment in your life that led you down that spiritual path? That's a great question. I grew up in a home where my mom practiced bhakti yoga, which, which is like a faithful form of yoga. She prayed to Krishna every day. And so did my grandmother. And so they were really full-fledged into prayer. My name actually 
is translated in Sanskrit that means prayer or the act of praying. I was born two months premature in Queens, New York, in this very small hospital. It did not have a NICU. And my parents truly believe that my grandfather, their family, everybody in India and them and all their friends who were chanting. And they believe that's how I was alive. I mean, the doctors were surprised. And so for me, this namesake of prayer, I, I would always try to understand it. And I've done many yoga trainings. I've read all these books, like you said. And I think the what comes down to it for me is when I sit down and I close my eyes and I access that part of me, I know I'm connected to some sort of source and I know it and it could be different for anybody. It could look like Christ for one person and could look like whatever it is. But for me, it's more energetic. It's something I feel. It's something that I feel shifts, shifts a thought or allows me to just get clear. And that's my spirituality. My spirituality is not really connected to, I, I do, I read about Lakshmi and all these beautiful goddesses only because I am learning something about myself through that. And so the more I connect to my own inner spirituality, the more I deepen my practice. And I did, I've had moments with plant medicine. I've had moments with really major meditation retreats. I did a 10 day silent retreat. All of these things just really bring me back to the same place. They bring me back to deepening my self-study and my understanding of who I am as a woman and what I'm here to do and, and how I'm going to embrace that. It's just guiding me. So that's my meditation and spiritual journey really in a nutshell. And as you said, the meditation portion of that is non-negotiable. That's a daily practice. And focusing on that word practice, you have to practice that mindfulness of doing that every day to get better at it, just like anything else. Just like anything else. There are moments where I wasn't, I fell off. I'd gone on this retreat and it was a 10 day silent retreat. And the insight I had in that, the insight of being silent, it's called, you know, the meditation is called Vipassana, the insight of just not talking <laughs> was like, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I could not believe how much time I spent forming what I was going to say, how I'm going to interact, what I need to say, what I am saying. Did I say that right? What do you know? Who do I have to talk to? What do I have? To, all of that. It's like detracts from this place. Right. And so that was so beautiful. I came back and I was practicing that regularly and then life happened and I was busy. And so when I quote unquote fell off my meditation bandwagon, it's interesting to see what comes up. My emotions are different. I see things differently. It's very subtle. I look different. It's very subtle, yet it's very noticeable to me and even to people around me. Sometimes I'm irritated more. All these little things that I didn't realize how profound this practice is in my life. And I think for anyone who has some sort of practice or ritual, you understand not being in the flow of that can really change things for sure. And throw your energy completely off. Exactly. How long have you been a yoga and meditation teacher and what inspired that journey into becoming a teacher? So I became a yoga, a true yoga teacher in 2011. So how many years is that? And so <laughs> it's been a number of years. Oh gosh. Sometimes <laughs> I'm years, like, how old years. am I? I don't remember. Uh, I am not a Gen Z, but anyway, so I definitely have been a yoga teacher for that long. However, yoga has been part of my life for a long time. My grandparents lived with my mother, father, and I for a number of years prior to that. My parents were the first to come over. So a lot of their family, they would sponsor and come over and help them get set. And then my grandparents were the ones who were caring for us really when my parents were working and trying to build a life for me and my brother and sister. And so I would sometimes sneak and see my grandfather doing these this pranayama or breathwork or yoga practices. It wasn't major, but I would see this as part of a way of life. And I thought, this is interesting. And then when he passed, my grandmother fully took on Ayurvedic ritual, which is a type of, it's connected to yoga. It's just using herbs and intention and, and cooking and all of this in her daily life. And so I was so inspired by that. I think that when I stepped foot in my first Western yoga studio, I was in college at the time. And it was before yoga was this every corner type of thing on everywhere. Yeah. And MTV, I loved music, MTV hosted MTV yoga back then. 
I was like, whoa, it's like combining two parts of me, right? And so I was an RA, a resident assistant at my college, which meant I was in charge of the floor. So I was able to get housing for free. And so I, I called all my residents. I put a sign up and I'm like, MTV yoga in the lounge. And so I had recorded it and we did a video of it. And that was my first class. I was in the front and I was <laughs> leading it. I was barely 18 or 19. I don't know. And that was when I realized, okay, I really connect to this. And then I just kept going. So the rest, yeah, as they say, is history. Yeah. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about the Shah and Exploration Foundations and the work you do through these foundations and what the inspiration was for them? Sure. So this is a 501c3 that my husband and I started many years ago. We wanted to really officialize some of the nonprofit work we were doing. We were already connected to a number of nonprofits, including the one I had gone to Uganda with and just some work I had done in India we also helped an organization in India. It's a beautiful organization run out of the Gandhi Ashram from where my parents are, fr are originally from. And they teach all of the teachings of Gandhi on principle of not only nonviolence, but just love all, serve all is their motto. And they wanted to create a music program. They called it Project Ahimsa. And they wanted to have a place where a lot of the kids who were from some of the slums in this one city would be able to come to and learn music and then further advance and study it, whatever they were learning there and just really keep them off the streets and keep them in school. And so we had raised money and, and created just a fund to be able to help them get that off the ground and donated that. So after that, both of us knew we wanted to keep this going. So we started the foundation really working on different causes in the beginning. We're now, since both of us have this passion for ancient wisdom, the idea is to to utilize ancient wisdom and, and bring awareness to causes that we believe in. And so we're working on creating causes that align with Ayurveda, which is the ancient science of India, mm -hmm. and really more on a modern idea of healthcare. And so we're working with causes there, as well as you can imagine why girls' rights. And so we've really just uh, wanting to partner and further make this information available to everyone. So that's where it started. What a beautiful mission. I love it. You're also the co-founder of Deep Origins. Can you share a little bit about that with us? Sure. So my husband actually started Deep Origins and I've been working with him on that. It's a media company. We've done all sorts of different things, but what we currently have is, and where I teach my guided meditation is a brand of Deep Origins called Project Yourself. And it's all meditation malas and products and crystals and the things that we know can enhance someone's meditation journey. It's an e-commerce store. However, for a number of years, it was also a meditation course. And I've run a lot of these meditations through that. And so that's the biggest part of Deep Origins, I can tell you. It, we're also now working on his documentary. My husband's documentary is called The Natural Law, and it's releasing this year. It is awesome. based on the science of Ayurveda and why the medical system is broken and I really do need <laughs> integrated health. Yeah, it's so a whole other crucial. podcast. Um, <laughs> so we're working there and then I've been aligning with bringing a lot of this girls education to India. I just actually spoke at a fundraiser for Girl Power Project India. It was in Uganda when I had gone with my friend's nonprofit, which I love. And it's now not only it, it piloted in one part of India called Rishikesh, uh, which is a very spiritual, beautiful place. However, really girls education is needed there. And now it just moved into Uttar Pradesh, which really is a state that is in desperate need of this type of education. So it has been really a beautiful journey for us as a company, a nonprofit, just really working in all these different areas. What incredible and beautiful work that you and your husband are doing together with these foundations. I think it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. What do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful? Oh, this is a good question. I think embracing the fact that I am an artist. And with that, I mean, really seeing the world as beautiful. I really do. I know there are parts that we're talking about that feel overwhelming. But even when I've done some of the nonprofit work, when I am with some of the girls and just looking into their eyes and just sharing a story fictionally, even on two girls who love to sing Bollywood songs and, <laughs> and just really embracing the beauty in each person. I think that's a superpower because I just feel like I can connect better and I can really just be heart to heart with someone. And when I do that, it just changes everything for me. So I can imagine the energetic connection with whoever I'm, I'm with. And so how do you define the word success? What does that word mean to you? 
I think success is shifting. I think there's so much I want to shift and in a way that is empowering for myself and for those around me. So it's just, yes, it's having this shift or to me, it would be having a mass scale impact with something that feels important, like what I'm talking about now with girls' rights. I think that no child should ever be sold in this world. And I think that it would be successful to create change around that. So that's what success is when we're actually creating the change. I love it. (laughs) What would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before learning it? And what was your life like after you learned it? I think this is a really interesting question. I think when I had a close encounter with losing people that I care about, my father was very sick when I was pregnant with my daughter. And then around the same time, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer and he was in a coma. He got out of it. He had all these surgeries. He had a double transplant surgery. And then my mom ended up having breast cancer. And I remember at the time really trying to understand how this is part of the plan. I think it's like, I don't understand the really good people. Why did this happen? And so I really had to move outside of that mentality and learn about this idea, which some people think, well, how can you not be attached? It was this idea of understanding attachment versus non-attachment, this idea of understanding trust, just really full trust. And this idea of understanding shifting and using intention and reality. And so all three of these things I learned because of this incident that had happened. And I think that after that, I really got to be in front of knowing that I don't have control of life and knowing that I don't have control of circumstances and knowing that the best thing that I can do is love, be fully present and use intention in a way that benefits not myself, but the greater good of life, human form and the people around me and know that everything is a blessing, even when it's disguised as it isn't. And so that has really shifted things for me, for sure. That is a massive mindset shift to be able to step into that. I just finished editing an interview with a woman who lost her son at 22, and she talked exactly about that attachment, letting go of that attachment. You have to see the gifts or the blessings in every situation. You have to be able to step outside of that and accept it for what it is. You cannot change it. There's nothing you can do. So you can either choose to be stuck in that victim mentality and that mindset, or you can shift the the way you look at it and think about it and step into a more positive space because the only one you're hurting is yourself by staying there. Exactly. And it's an important lesson. It was an important lesson and it got me through some other tough times after that. And I think that was the blessing. I was like, this is what I needed this. I needed to move into this to be able to deal with miscarriage and deal with the things that came for me after that. And and I think it's all part of, like we said, just what aligns at the time that, that things are happening. And you, it doesn't feel like it in that moment, but it will. And even if it doesn't, there was something there that I had to look at as a blessing. And it made me stronger. So I think we all look at things like, isn't that how we build character as kids? We say it to our kids when they fall off their bike. Yeah. You know, when you fall off your bike, you'll it makes you stronger. You're going to learn. I know it hurts and you're going to learn. And it's the same exact advice for when we're older. <laughs> I love it. Thank you for sharing that experience. Okay, we're going to jump into a little rapid fire section here. So the next grouping of questions, just be two, three, four word answer type thing. Okay. Okay. How would you describe yourself in one word? Graceful. I love that word. If you could teach the world one thing, what would it be? Compassion. What is one thing you love about yourself that is not related to your physical appearance? I would say my poetry. (laughs) I love that. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? I would say bringing awareness to the causes, not only that I talk about, but that need awareness that come to me. It's not what I choose. It's what comes through me. So what is one thing you want, but cannot buy with money? Ooh, gratitude. What never fails to make you laugh? My kids. (laughs) That concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. What challenge in your life has shaped you the most? The challenge that shaped me the most, and I'm, I'm going to say this, it's not a challenge, but it was for me when I first started, is back to where I began when I talked to you, is motherhood. I wasn't prepared to be a mom. I wasn't sure. We weren't prepared. And <laughs> I had, I was like, oh, they, I will wait two years. Or, and then two yeah. months later, I was pregnant. And my kids have been my 
biggest spiritual teachers, my biggest. There have been challenges. There have been ups and downs. There have been scary moments. There have been heart bursting, joyous moments. And they are this challenge of parenting, of finding balance, of not only self and life and them, but also letting go. And all these things we just talked about is spirituality. I'm finding I'm learning that through them. I mean, letting my child be who she is and who he is far greater of a challenge than anything I've ever done. And I think it is the biggest gift of my life. I was just going to say they are a gift. That's for sure. They challenge you. They stretch you. They shape you in ways you never even knew possible. A hundred percent. What is one lesson your career has taught you that you think everybody should learn at some point in their life? To be humble. I went into this with no idea. I went from a healthcare career into fiction writing, completely two opposite sides of the spectrum. And I knew nothing. It was during the pandemic, but I was going to conferences, Zoom conferences, and sitting there listening with a notepad, how to query a book publisher. Like I had no idea. Prior to that, I'm going on tour to dental schools talking and I don't know, it, it felt so different. And I think staying in that even now, just that place has allowed me to learn so much more about myself and about my career and the world. And so just staying in that place, I think it feels really good. No matter what happens, no matter what award comes in, it just feels better to just be from this place of, well, I'm still learning. Well, we are always learning. We're, we, we never reach the destination. It's a journey and we're constantly growing and evolving. Agree. A hundred percent. What is an unexpected blessing or occurrence in your life that you're grateful for? So this is something part of the documentary my husband's releasing, but from my end, my husband had celiac disease and didn't know it for many years. And we didn't know what was wrong with him. And it brought Ayurveda into our life. I had been practicing for my grandmother, of course. I was always putting in turmeric in our food and doing all these things herb-wise. But really, when I got did my yoga training, I, I was like, wait, there's this thing called panchakarma. There's this detox. There's this way of life. There's being aligned with the doshas. And what is all of this? And that unexpected diagnosis allowed us to fully fledge into Ayurveda. And I am just so grateful for this wisdom and just being able to embrace something that is not the traditional healthcare norm. However, it has kept my family and I healthy and continue to heal. I mean, we're healing and it just feels wonderful. Pooja, what is your why? My why is to just share my voice because it's just, it's everything to me. My voice means whatever comes through me as topics of underrepresented women or whatever it is that I'm sharing. I know that no matter what, I have to keep sharing this voice whatever comes and listening to my guidance, which is my inner place of being. And the more I listen, the more I know that I'm doing this because it's my dharma. So Love it's my it. and I think we can all take a page from that book and we all have a voice and we all have a story that we need to share and we need to do that. People need to step into that and start doing that. And this also speaks to how, when we do that, united, it also shines a much brighter light on the things that we need to bring light to and bring awareness around. So it's very important to note that. Totally. Thank you. If you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one hour conversation with one woman, any woman in the world, who would it be and why? I normally would pick some famous writer or someone, but my grandmother passed away last July and we started learning when she was I love her beyond. She never liked dentures. And at the end of her life, she was just this toothless. She looked like this happy Buddha. Like she is just my everything. So I was mourning for a while and it was right before my book came out. And I realized I wrote this book on girls in India and she was almost a century old and just everything she had probably seen from India to America, to marriage, to raising four women and to all things. And I realized I would love to interview her mother. Like I want to learn more about my lineage and my ancestry. And it really got me thinking about that. So I think that's who I would interview. Love it. That's beautiful. If you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? It would be to listen to your inner voice. I knew I was a writer and I'm glad I had all the experiences I did as a public health professional and all the other hats I, I took on. But if I were to go back and look at that 
16 year old girl and who is like, what do I want to do when I get older? And I just look her in the eye. I would say, listen, you know who you are. That's what I would say to her. <laughs> Lastly, Pooja, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, your corner of the world, your tribe, your people, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What words of wisdom would you impart? Oh gosh. So 30 seconds, huh? Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> there's this Sanskrit mantra. It's Loka Samasta Sukino Bhavantu. And what that translates to is may all beings everywhere be happy and free. And may the thoughts, words, and actions of my own life contribute in some way to that happiness and to that freedom for all. And I would want to give that saying to everyone to just close their eyes, feel that, and be that. Beautiful. Pooja, thank you so so much for this incredibly inspirational, enlightening, and beautiful conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure having the opportunity to sit down and speak with you. You are a true inspiration and you shine such a bright, beautiful light out into the world through all that you are and all that you do. I'm so grateful to be connected to you and to know you. Thank you for taking and making the time to be here with me today and share in your story and your journey and your vulnerability with me. I am honored. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for having me for this platform and for all that you do. My pleasure and my honor. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Pooja Shah. She is an award-winning author, a poet, president of the Shah Foundation and Exploration Foundation, also the co-founder of Deep Origins, and of course, last but certainly not least, a mother. Thank you so much, Pooja. I hope you have an amazing rest of the day. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca, follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast, and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.